Are we ready in Nebraska? Yes. Nice. How about Kentucky? I am unmuted, and yes. What about Virginia? Yep. Yes. Nice. All right, guys. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Croncast. I am Luke. I'm Josh. And I am Jonathan. <laughs> nice. Nice, nice, nice. Like quadruple nice. Ex- Super noise. Ex- exponential ni- noise. <laughs> we are... Uh, we are recording tonight with a couple very special guests. This is a very special episode of the Chromecast. Absolutely. Uh, we have Jason Ray Carney and oh. Nicole Immelhaines Carney here with us. Hi. Welcome to the Chromecast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and Nicole and Jason are both in the Department of English at Christopher Newport University. And yep. they, they are pulp scholars and editors of... The Dark Man, the Robert E. Howard and Pulp Fiction Studies Journal. Oh, sorry, the Journal of Robert E. Howard and Pulp Fiction Studies. Uh, act, uh, pulp Studies. Pulp we, we Studies. We drop, dropped uh, the, the, the fiction. Okay. The, title. the fiction yeah, has been dropped. Yes. <laughs> Welcome, guys. We're, we're excited to, to have you all on the mics. Uh, tonight, we are going to discuss uh, a Robert E. Howard story. This is The Fire of Asurbanipal. That's that right. How are we going to say that? Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Yeah, we're going to talk about, what's the, is this the weirdification? Is that the term? The weirdification. We're on our road of revisions, and this is a Howard-centric episode. This is going to be a fun one, because we have some cool materials, I think, that we read in preparation for this. Some track changes within our Word documents. That's right. Some comparisons. High tech. Yeah, this is good. We went next level with the tech (laughs) this time. Um, Yeah, this is going to be cool, because the fire of Azerbaijan is a story that initially was a rather um, mundane adventure tale that eventually spun into a weird story that was published in Weird Tales in yeah. uh, December of 36. So it was published uh, posthumously um, and was submitted by Robert's father, Isaac. So Was yeah. it published in a pulp in, in the original version? Uh, nope. The original version was never published. And uh, what I was able to discern from howardworks.com is that uh, – uh, it's unclear where or if it was even submitted anywhere, but Howard revised it, added the uh, the the weird ending, and then uh, his father sent it in. Glenn Lord later found the mundane version in the trunk, the the mythical trunk, right, John? Yeah, mythical <laughs> trunk, the trunk, and it was published in the Howard Collector number sixteen in the uh, spring nineteen seventy two issue of that uh, that publication. So the initial adventure story version of this never saw the light of day until the 1970s. Okay. Cool. When was it published in Weird Tales? Oh, I'm sorry. Am I getting ahead of, ahead of ourselves? No, no, no. Uh, it was published in Weird Tales in December of 1936, um, which mm. was uh, – it makes it one of Howard's first posthumous uh, publications. Okay. It's interesting because I, I – uh, there's a guy, Daniel Look, um, who does uh, stylometry. Yeah. Um, did you guys know Daniel or interviewed him before? We haven't interviewed him. Uh, the first year that we went to Robert E. Howard Days in Cross Plains, John and I wa- were uh, able to listen to one of his talks on stylometry. And uh, I think it was in regard to the, the book Al Murek. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So has he uh, done some some research on this story? I, well, I don't know, but I'm... I, but I, I'm just—I uh, was interested by how different the, the the two versions are, and I'm wondering if like 
this was sent, like the original manuscript was sent to another writer, maybe Lovecraft or someone, to add weird elements to make it appropriate for the market. Because like they're so they're so different, you know, the versions are so different. Yeah, just interesting. Yeah, uh, I'm not certain. I bet there's someone out there uh, like Rusty Burke, um, or, or maybe even Mark Finn, who knows a little bit more about this than than we do. But yeah, um, yeah it, it seems as though um, there's a, a very Lovecraftian feel right to the additions made to the story. Yes. So, but we'll get into that. Okay. Good deal. Good deal. Well, uh, you guys have been on the road. I think we would be, uh, remiss if we didn't talk about Howard days and y'all's exploits there. I think both of y'all gave, gave talks. Is that right? Yeah. Multiple ones. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you gave, you gave two Nicole. We were on multiple panels. Okay. Okay. Multiple panels. And both of y'all gave talks during the, the, the symposium, right? The Glen Lord symposium. Yes. Cool. Uh, are you guys yeah. comfortable talking a little bit about what you what you presented there? Is that okay? Sure. Cool. Hit you us with it. <laughs> you want me to go first? Yes, please. So what I started researching ahead of the symposium was to look at Howard and how he was discussing his process of writing or creation um, for his fiction. And I was drawing on the collected Howard letters. Um, I didn't get to go through all of them yet. Um, I focused, ended up focusing more on the first volume where he's talking with uh, Harold Priest and Tevis Clyde Smith quite a bit. Um, so I haven't looked at the Lovecraft Howard letters as much but just in kind of a nutshell, what I was noticing from my analysis of the letters, and I should um, just take a second and explain that how I analyze them is I dumped the bulk of the letters into a um, software anal- a software analysis um, called Voyant that does all different types of um, analyses on big pieces of text. So it's a type of digital humanities approach using big data called distant reading. Um, And that is just allowing you to do interpretive work um, of text. Um, But instead of doing a close reading, you're doing a distant reading. So you're you're kind of analyzing patterns um, at the language of, um, at the level of language. So I noticed for instance, that in the first volume, he was talking a lot about writing and reading and um, poetry was something that he was talking a lot about and kind of discussing like how he was going about writing poems versus fiction. And then through volume two, there was a slight change um, where things about other magazines and other stories um, started becoming more prominent in the letters. Um, And then the volume three he was talking a lot more about getting published and thinking about like magazines. He was still talking about reading. That was something that was pretty consistent as far as usage of that word throughout the whole um, three collections. But yeah, so I was basically just trying to um, come to some kind of understanding about how he was thinking about the writing process, thinking about, who he was writing for, how he was going to create 
different types of texts for different types of markets, how he was thinking about any feedback he was getting. So one of the um, points I wanted to make was that he was not simply a pulp hack, um, but he was very cognizant of the larger um, kind of rhetorical situation of him as an author, a set of readers that included um, people he would never meet that was that read his work in these different magazines, um, editors, and friends, including writer friends that he may have been talking to through the letters. And he was also aware of um, the publications themselves and what they uh, wanted. And so he was just very thoughtful about his writing process. So that was that was what I talked about um, with my presentation this year. And that was nominated for one of the awards, right? I think technically my nomination came from work I did last year. Oh, okay. Okay. And what was, what was that over? Last year I did a presentation at Howard Days that um, argued that sword and sorcery is actually a genre that's very friendly to um, explorations of gender. So I was trying to make an argument that it was a feminist genre, not in necessarily that, you know, it promoted feminist causes, but that it allowed for explorations of gender performativity uh, in a really open manner. And that Howard was establishing this um, predominantly through uh, Sword Woman, um, even though I know that's not techn- technically sword and sorcery, I think it might have eventually gone in that trajectory had he um, continued on with the character. Uh, but that that establishment of that character, um, I was seeing allowed other writers uh, like um, Sale Moore, for instance, to explore gender in some, some really interesting ways that maybe, you know, she might not have otherwise done so. I mean, that's hard mm-hmm. to speculate on, but that's what I talked about last year. Cool. Yeah. That, uh, that was a really good talk and we were, we, we were there in the yeah, audience we were there for, for that. that. <laughs> right. Right. Cool. So I, I talked about, uh, Howard, um, and his work with gender on, um, the podcast imaginary worlds, um, on an episode that came out earlier this year that was focused just on the character of Conan specifically, but it also talked a lot about Howard as a writer. Um, so if anyone is interested, they can listen to that and kind of get a little bit of my argument that I also talked about at the Howard Days panel last year. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, we'll okay. post a link to that in our show notes. Awesome. Jason, can you talk a little bit about what you presented? Sure. So I was on... Uh, a couple of panels, um, the Glen Lord Symposium. I uh, recently became a, um, a member of the REH uh, UPA. Okay. And um, I, I uh, wrote this essay up for the UPA, uh, and I, I uh, shared it with everyone. It was called Conan the Compassionate, and it's um, basically it looks at uh, red nails and this uh, the trope of the uh, of the stalemate war. In literature, and it's really interesting in literary history, this idea of like a war that never ends, that uh, dehumanizes the um, the people fighting it, is, is is quite common. You know, it goes back to like the Trojan War, uh, the Achaeans and the Trojans like completely dehumanize each other, and um, 
I talk about, um, you know, the, uh, the river of boiling blood and, uh, Dante's Inferno, the Phlegathon, and it's, um, uh, you know, basically the, the, the violent are tormented by centaurs because they fought each other and it's an, it, it's a never ending, uh, war. And then, um, uh, you know, the, um, in 1984, you have uh, the uh, never-ending war between Oceania and all the other large um, uh, nations. But uh, if you guys have read Red, uh, Red Nails, it's about a never-ending war mm-hmm. between these two factions. And they've completely – not only have they dehumanized each other – I mean uh, the other, the, the ones they're fighting. But in this, in this war that they've engaged in, uh, they've dehumanized themselves. And then um, Conan and Valeria enter into the city – uh, Chicotli, and um, we don't really think about Conan as being compassionate, you know, like he's 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 a death dealer, mm-hmm. he's a warrior, uh, but really what defines the character in that story is 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 how they um, uh, not just Conan but also Valeria is how they tend to each other's wounds, you know, um, Conan and Valeria. There's these really touching moments where they're healing each other, you know, bandaging each other's wounds and stuff. Whereas the um, denizens of Chicotli. Uh, you know, they stamp out eyeballs and, uh, you know, bite each other even as they are dying. You know what I mean? Like they're just completely insane and hate with their, um, their hatefulness. Uh, so, so it, 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 it a, for me, it was surprising, um, you know, to think about Conan as a, as a compassionate person um, and Valeria as a compassionate person. But, but they're actually they like maintain their humanity through, you know, being nice to each other in this extremely horrible situation of what I call the stalemate or. But then I was on a panel on uh, Sword and Sorcery, uh, R.E.H.'s Sword and Sorcery characters. Mm-hmm. And that was like a really cool panel. And I'm, I'm still – my head's still spinning from the, the conversation. It was it was really great. I, I recommend people watch Ben Freeberg's video because mm-hmm. um, a lot uh, – everyone else said more interesting things than I did. Uh, <laughs> David um, C. Smith, the guest of honor, he kind of took took the lead in the um, in the panel. And he's a, he's a uh, widely uh, – uh, published, um, you know, fiction writer, at least in the, I believe it was the uh, late eighties, early nineties. He wrote a lot of the, um, the, of, of pastiche novels. Like he wrote a lot of red Sonia novels. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, but he, he had some really compelling thoughts about, um, what distinguishes sword and sorcery from high fantasy. Um, but yeah, yeah, I could talk more about that. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to post my, uh, REH, um, uh, UPA, uh, paper Conan the Compassionate on my blog, but I, I want to do a little bit more work on it before I do that. Okay, cool. So, so real quick, what's your what's your blog address? It has that blogger uh, standard address. Mm-hmm. It's spiraltower dot blogspot dot com. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I think that's it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Great. And It'll we'll work. Post, we'll post links to. Uh, Jason's blog, uh, the REH Foundation, or sorry, the REH Days videos by uh, Ben Freeberg, and uh, all of this content that uh, is is just so incredible and so awesome that you guys are working on uh, on our uh, blog post for this episode. Cool. Thanks. So, Thanks. Uh, so is it fair to say? I mean, you guys had fun in cross planes, right? Oh, absolutely. It was yeah. a little depressing this year because Rusty uh, Burke wasn't there. Right. Yeah. Right. Mark Finn, uh, Frank Kaufman. There, there were. It was like a perfect storm that kept like these these um, legendary figures out of uh, you know REH days. Mm-hmm. And I just, I guess, I missed them. 
Yeah. yeah. It was still awesome. It's no, always it, awesome. It's always a good time, but it did feel just a little more subdued this year. Okay. Was there uh, a healthy attendance otherwise? Or was it? Oh, was yeah. It, okay. oh yeah. No, I think so. Um, and I know the foundation said that they they were selling just tons of books. Good deal. Uh, more than they had at any other uh, Howard days. And I think what happened is lots of new people came during the day, but they didn't know they could stay for the like barbecue and the oh. evening events. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So the crowds died down pretty fast after the panels and stuff let out. And stick around for the after dark events. The whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Got to think of a way to keep people there because that conversation at the pavilion is uh, probably my favorite part. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the best. Did David uh, uh, C. Smith was the guest of honor? I already said that. Okay. Uh, you're right. You're right. But uh, his speech at the banquet was amazing. And he actually um, uh, talked about uh, Howard as a literary uh, artist. And uh, he's he's sending the dark man his speech, and we're going to publish it as an article. Oh, great! Oh, that's amazing. Good yeah. deal. And that is a perfect segue for us to talk a little bit about the dark man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys are heading up a, um, a a revitalization of this journal. What what's going on with it? Uh, how did you guys get involved, and where are things now, and where are things going to go? Do you want to handle the how we got involved? I can handle how we got involved. So I, uh, back in, gosh, uh, 2009, I did um, a panel at the Popular Culture Association. Uh, it wasn't. A, it was a um, presentation at the Popular Culture Association on uh, Howard's um, Pigeons from Hell. Mm-hmm. It was in the horror section, and it just so happened that um, a guy named uh, Jonas Prita. Do you guys know him? Yeah, he was actually uh, he gave a Glenn Lord symposium talk the the year that John and I first went to Howard Days. Awesome. Yeah, so he was in the audience. He he came to the horror section just because he saw a Howard presentation, and uh, afterwards he was like, "Oh, you should you know you know there's an academic journal that publishes work on on, on Howard." And so I was like, "No, I had no idea." And so I sent it to Mark Hall. Uh, Mark Hall uh, published that 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 uh, essay, and then for like the next. Um, uh, five years or so, I was doing a lot of book reviews for The Dark Man. And uh, Mark Hall, uh, he is, for him, it's kind of a sideline. Like, he takes it serious, but he has a, another job. Um, I mean, it's it's his main uh, job. He works for um, the Department of the Interior. And he, he'd been doing The Dark Man for so long, he, he decided, um, when Nicole and I actually finished our PhDs and got jobs, um, they were like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, um, you guys are English professors. It's most appropriate that you guys are the editors and uh, kind of pass the tor- torch to us. It took a while because um, Mark had an idea for um, the he, – he wanted to do a, uh, one final issue and um, uh, steady for sure it was – he finished that issue. And we, we published our first issue. Uh, so volume uh, nine, um, it, it's, 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 it's available for purchase on um, Amazon. That was Mark Hall's uh, last issue, but it, the the aesthetic that um, uh, is there now, like the the same cover, the uh, the the, the um, pages, the doc, the um, layout, the design of the pages, it's, it's kind of it, it was collaborative. I guess you can think about Volume Nine as like that was uh, us, you know, it was a little bit Mark and a little bit. Um, there's actually an editorial in Volume Nine where we talk about taking over. Okay. And then, the most recent issue, uh, volume uh, 10.1, I'm sorry, issue 10, 10.1, 
uh, that that was all us. So um, gotcha. Mark Mark is still con- uh, the the editor emeritus, but he um uh you know um he's we're 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 just consulting with him uh, okay. at this point. Mm. And so, folks, just so just so we iron it out here, you can get uh like hard copies of it through through Amazon. Just searching for the Dark Man, and so like issue nine will get you will get you that, and then ten point one is the new one. Ten point one, I think, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. And a lot of the older issues are 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 available on um, Amazon as well. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's it's print on demand. So I think it's it, is it like eight bucks prime across the board or is it, is that the more and more recent stuff? Uh, don't quote me. I, I think, uh, volume nine and volume 10.1 are $8. I think yep. the previous issues might, might be creeping up in price. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then if you go on eBay yeah. and get the really old ones, cause the dark man has been gone since 19. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Like when I was at cross planes last year, the, 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 the one time that I went like just doing the, uh, the silent auction, there was a handful of uh, the Dark Man and then some Ray Hoopas that were like for sale there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was that was pretty cool. I mean, to, to see those out there. But the the whole like $8 like prime, like print on demand for the, for the last couple issues, I mean, that's going to get you a couple hundred pages worth of criticism, right? Uh, well, right now, the 10.1 and 9 are um, 100 pages. Right. So, so between the two, you're going to get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A wealth of content. That's a good deal. I mean, <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's cool. So, yeah. uh, sorry, Nicole, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to answer your next questions about where we're going now. Yeah, okay. great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so our plan is to get um, a regular publishing schedule. Um, we're hoping to print twice a year, um, probably release one for Howard days every year, because that just works out really well. Um, and then the other one later in the year, probably in November, December, um, sometime around, around that, you know, end point of the semester. So we will post, um, calls for submissions on our Facebook page. And eventually we're uh, going to have a website that we will uh, be posting, um, information on as well. Um, we just haven't gotten a chance to catch our breath from Howard days to Mm -hmm. start working on that. Um, and then as soon as that's up, we'll obviously let people know through the Facebook page. And yeah, so our goal is to have, um, about three academic articles, um, slightly longer, um, probably like somewhere between like three and 5,000 words, uh, we started a new section that we're calling Emerging Voices, um, where it will be reserved for either undergraduate um, um, articles or people who haven't been published um, in the journal before, or maybe but like so graduate students potentially, or just anybody. Um, as we talked about it at the Howard Days, what's happening with Howard panel, uh, we're really encouraging of anyone who has an interest and a passion um, for this work to submit, and we want to be as helpful um, as we can. So if people are hesitant to submit because they're uncertain about using MLA style, for instance, that should not 
prevent them from doing so. Like we will help you to the best of our ability. Um, we are going to be holding peer review for the articles that are submitted just to help the journal establish a bit more credibility and legitimacy, but it's also meant to help our authors. Um, so if you submit something um, and you don't get accepted the first time, you can get feedback on your work and that could help you uh, revise the article to be submitted for a later issue. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're hoping to do that more regularly. We're also planning to publish uh, reviews um, and or interviews um, so at least a couple of those in every issue as well. And we're going to invite somebody from our editorial board to do what we're calling a scholarly note. So once the academic articles are in place, somebody from that, that review board will read them all and write something um, that kind of treats themes or ideas that are being discussed in the issue. Cool. So our goal is to make it very community oriented. Um, we want to make sure that everyone has access to it and that it will be about, um, continuing and expanding conversations. Nice. Nice. I love the idea of both having it pretty, pretty open to the world and the, the whole peer review angle for the scholarly articles. Mm -hmm. That's great. I mean, yeah. <laughs> on all fronts. That's cool. Fostering community and, yeah. and open discussions on, uh, you know, Howard and, and, and pulps just as, as a yeah. greater sort of thing. Uh, that is awesome. Thanks. Can you, uh, I'm sorry. No. So, so with the 10.1, uh, do you have one of the, like, uh, like treaties that's, that's come out of that from one of the editors as far as like a theme or anything like that? Did that happen? This issue? I, yeah, I actually wrote it. Okay, so so what's the what's this the 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 story or the pitch there? Yeah, so uh, what I and we didn't intend for this to happen, but what kind of naturally happened uh, between the three academic articles and the two emerging um, voices, uh, which were both undergraduate writers, um, they they all were t discussing notions of identity um, in some way. So I talked a lot about that in my scholarly note, um, kind of the exploration of characters uh, being able to take on different kinds of identity. Um, I actually modified uh, part of the talk I gave at the Glen Lord last year in preparation for this particular scholarly note. So, I, I'm, so what ended up happening is I talked about the theme and I talked about how each author was addressing the theme. And then I presented kind of like a, a brief reading of, um, of, of the sword woman stories um, and how Howard was, was playing around with um, exploring identity and, and specifically gender performativity uh, in that. So it's kind of like um, we're thinking of the scholarly note as an opportunity for somebody on the board to also present um, some new ideas um, doesn't have to be like um, a, I'm not saying that I didn't research it, but it, you know, it, it's kind of like research light. Yeah. It's a um, think piece, right? Yeah. It's kind of a, here's me sort of a jumping off point of, yeah. of other materials. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of pull ideas from what these other authors have done and you present something that's also kind of tied to that. So it's just another way of having a conversation um, within the issue itself, um, kind of drawing the different ideas and voices 
from these scholars into one place and then kind of extending that conversation further. I dig it. I I really liked, at least within like the, the, the video that Freeberg posted as far as your Glenn Lord presentation this year, the, the way you sort of framed up the like, Hey, let's have a conversation about these materials. That's, that's, that's good. It's, it's really going to be, I think, invigorating for a lot of the field. I mean, it's going to open it up for a lot of new people if they want to submit things or if they've got like an idea that's just waiting around. Like there's, it seems like you guys have an open door that's ready and there's submissions going now, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The call for submissions went out, I think, right after we finished issue 10.1. We should, we'll repost it. So it's up toward the top of the Facebook feed for the, the dark man page. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think we're accepting through August. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So a couple more months, it'll be open. And, um, the ones that we've already gotten, we're going to start sending out for peer review probably in the next week. Cool. So yeah, there's still time for people to get stuff into us. And, and this episode will post before that, that closing yeah. deadline. So if folks have anything that they want to send in, they can they can check you guys out on the Facebook page, uh, but but otherwise like book reviews and, and shorter pieces are welcome. But in terms of like core uh, criticism content, that's in like the uh, two to four thousand word length. Is that right, or is it three to five? Um, two to four, probably. Well, well, what do we, you think? We say on the um, call for papers four thousand for a scholarly article, um, two thousand for a note, um, and uh, one thousand for a review. Right but on. that's negotiable. I mean, yeah, it, it's all, you know, up to, I guess, like how, how well the author's treating the subject at hand. If they need 5,000 words and it, it, it's, that's what it, that's what it calls for. Then we would be open to it. Um, right on. I think okay. for, for the, for, like I said, for the main scholarly pieces, I don't think we really want them to go under 3000 words. Yep. I don't think many journals, uh, academic journals that are peer reviewed, um, often will, publish something that's that's much less than that right that's that's great i mean there's an outlet here for for all kinds of uh criticism yeah. short yeah. short form and longer form so thank Absolutely. you all we're, we're, <laughs> we're super excited yeah also there is um this academic association called the um the popular culture association um uh, and there's a, a section um uh called the pulp study section and um, in the past, uh, that's actually how I met uh, Jeff Shanks, Rusty Burke, and Mark Finn. They, they used to present papers at this, um, uh, this conference. The, the Popular Culture Association holds an annual conference. Um, and uh, I, I just became the chair of that section. Cool. So um, okay. I, we're, we're hoping to connect the, uh, the dark man to that section. I mean the dark man is totally 100 um, percent you know, Robert E. Howard. But the reason why we, we call it the Dark Man Journal of Robert E. Howard and Pulp Studies is because we think of Robert E. Howard as like the quintessential pulp writer. Mm-hmm. Like if there is an archetype of the pulp writer, Robert E. Howard is totally that archetype. You know, he he um uh is you know he's an artist, but he's an artist in a special way. He's still very much a, a writing for the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, um and so, but I, I think there's room in the journal for for um work that's not just about Howard. I mean, if there if someone has an article on Clark Ashton Smith or Farnsworth Wright or, um, you know, um, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, I'd love to publish an article about H.P. Lovecraft. Um, yeah, actually, we, we actually have an essay in 10.1 about Lovecraft. Um, you know, uh, I, I love for those 
to submit it. But uh, yeah, the poem study section is is also a part of this too. A lot of times these uh, there are uh, sections of these uh, uh, these large academic conferences will have a journal associated with the section, and we're thinking about the dark man as being linked up with the pulp study section of the PCA. Well, that's great, and and that just adds more uh, chops to the uh, the the journal itself. Um, so that's really exciting. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, and it's appropriate that um, we're not just publishing scholars. I mean, Howard is this really interesting person and and, and a writer in pop in a literary history because I, I like to t- when I I talk to my students about um, Howard as a kind of uh, you know by analogy think about Charles Dickens. Like no one will contest that Charles Dickens is a uh, a canonical author, right? But in the 1930s, he was considered a popular writer, ephemeral. You know, you read him for entertainment. He wasn't an artist. You know, it wasn't worth a second glance. Um, right. I think it, it takes some historical distance before people start treating, um, realizing how important to a culture like, i.e., American culture, that writers are. Mm-hmm. And and so I think I think Howard just this moment where like he. He's not just the, um, the uh, intellectual property of, of professors, right? The, uh, honestly, if, if professors finally get their hooks in him and start writing about him exclusively, uh, it's they will only be able to do so because of the work that like fans have done. People right. like you know Rusty Burke and uh, Jeff Shanks and Mark Finn and the Robert E. Howard Foundation and you guys, you know, so. Yeah, it's it's an exciting time for for Howard studies and and pulp studies in general. So it's, it's so great that you guys are taking the reins of the dark man and, uh, revitalizing it in, yeah, yeah. in, in such a way. I got a, I got an important question. <laughs> yeah. What, what are you guys drinking? <laughs> uh, I'm drinking a Stella. Nicole's drinking. What, what are you drinking? Uh, oh, I have lime seltzer water here. That's okay. Mm. That's fair. We like the, uh, we like the sparkling waters. What do you have over there, John? Sparkling water. I bet. I am also drinking lemon lime sparkling water. So. Yeah. What Cheers. kind? What kind? <laughs> nice. Is it is it uh, Lacroix? Oh no, I'm trying a new kind tonight. Ozarka. Ozarka. I oh. believe that Luke's family makes it down in the, <laughs> the wilds of Arkansas. <laughs> Arkansas. Yeah. What's uh, what's your flavor of choice there, Nicole? Well, this is. Um, I don't think they have. Uh, Lidl's or Littles in Kentucky. It's like an Aldi, so we go there and okay. it's the cheapest sparkling water I can find. Right it's great. I'm looking at a, a can of uh, Kroger's seltzer water. It's oh, caffeine yeah. free. Oh it's totally plain. It's good for the bourbon. That's <laughs> what we're doing here. Uh, what, what are we drinking here, Josher? Josher, I've got Josher. I've got a bottle of very old Barton, uh, yep. 86 proof bourbon whiskey. It's got an eagle on it. It's yep. very majestic. Uh, and you've got someone. Someone just tweeted at us wanting to know what was in your bat bottle. It is uh, Evan Rude. It's the Evan Williams Black Label, and it's in a generic bottle because it's from a bigger bottle. Yep, that's what's there. Okay, so we've got that. We've got some seltzer water. We're drinking a little bit of bourbon, and we're going to talk about some some Howard stories. That's right. Are we live? Are uh, we live? No. No, we're not no, live. No. Because somebody um, tweeted. Uh, yeah. It was, it was interesting. Yeah. We usually uh, tweet that uh, we're recording. Something. I'm live tweeting it, dude. Yeah. When I when I do these uh, uh, podcasts, I'm always like, my my um, blood pressure is lower because I know you guys will make me sound eloquent no matter what I say. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Through editing. But if it's live, then immediately I'm like, 
Oh God! No, no, no. no. <laughs> right, no. So some friends of ours do live podcasts, but we just are not that interested in trying that. Okay, we're not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we're not that quippy, and uh, we need we need a first pass, a, a rough Speak editorial pass. Okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and uh, we'll segue into the uh, the other section. We're taking a lot of time on our front matter, but whatever. It, this is, this is this is free. This is it's a, it's a free episode. It's for the masses. We're doing the Patreons are going to be saying. <laughs> Let's go ahead and do the one thing. One thing. <laughs> All right, uh, Nicole, awesome. Jason. So so we have this thing where we do. Uh, our, one, our, one, thing. Our one thing at the, at, the, at the relative front end of the episode and front end is is a relative term That's right. so do you guys have anything you've been getting into over the past week or three something that that's been sort of first and foremost in your in your heads yeah so um my my parents came down to visit uh which is really phenomenal because they don't like to drive more than like 30 minutes past uh where they live in ohio um, so it was a big deal for them. And every night, um, my dad would watch this show on Netflix. I guess it was originally on A&E, but I'd never heard of it, called Longmire. Okay. Oh, cool. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know Longmire. Absolutely, yeah. Like, it's, um, if you haven't watched it, um, it focuses on the sheriff in a, um, a county in Wyoming. And, um, I mean, I'm only like four or five episodes in, but it's, it's pretty, it's like part funny, but it's also part serious. It's, it's, you know, usually there's a murder. Um, so some type of crime has happened and he's trying to solve it. He has a very small sheriff's department. Um, he's also kind of butting heads with the sheriff at the reservation. There's a lot of other political things going on. There's some familial things going on with um, him and his daughter Right. And I guess his wife has died. The sheriff's wife has died in the past year. So he's trying to get over that. But, I mean, you know, it was kind of one of those things where my dad uh, – my dad and I don't well, – we kind of have the same taste in, like, movies and entertainment, but not necessarily always. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was fun to watch that with him, and I'm pretty stoked to keep watching it. Cool. And I can talk to him about it. It's kind of a crossover of, like, the Western and the noir, right? And, like, uh, yeah. like, like uh, – Murder She Wrote. Is that is that yeah. or it's not like Murder She Wrote? Uh, <laughs> woman in it, but, it, but yeah, it's kind of like that. Um, but it's it's you know it, it's pretty, I find it to be uh, pretty funny. It has has some pretty comedic moments in cool. it that I'm enjoying. So. I, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say Murder She Wrote. More like Monster of the Week or like Murderer of the Week. Is, is, is that's the yeah. kind of the, yeah, the theme. Yeah. I guess yeah. so my dad's almost done with it and he said that eventually there's um kind of like a mo- more uh, coherent narrative arc that starts to happen in the later seasons cool um, so, yeah sounds good cool Jay got one yeah yeah I, I, I can mine's a little bit more um, uh, nerdy than Nicole's I, I'm teaching this uh, class for the summer um, CNU has this thing called the Summer Humanities Institute and I'm teaching a, a course on the Byronic hero. Uh, <laughs> awesome. The, yeah, the or the romantic hero, or I just actually the anti-hero. 
I'm using all three uh, terms in the class, but um, we just uh, read uh, The Sorrows of Young Werther by um, Goethe. Do you, do you guys know that novel? I do not, no. It's it's pretty awesome. It's, uh, it's basically about this... Um, it's connected to Howard. So it's, it's about this, uh, uh young man. It, it was written in the, um, uh, 17, uh, 70s. It's about this, uh, young man, uh, Werther who falls in love with a married woman and, um, you know, she loves him, but, uh, she's not going to break her, uh, you know, marriage vows. Right. And they're stuck in this, this, uh, feudalistic traditional society where like they can't get out, you know, and he ends up like killing himself. And uh, it was considered like when, when 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 Goethe published this novel, it was like basically a bestseller if, if they if that term applies. And it was Napoleon's favorite book. And I'm actually in this class. We're reading all these you know uh, stories of the Byronic hero, and arguably Werther is the first Byronic hero. And usually, um, it's 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 the Byronic hero is a um, is a young man. Tell me if this has anything to do with Howard, right? Uh, or post Oaks and Santa Ruffs or, or, or his biography, his actual biography. Mm-hmm. It's a young man who feels disgusted by society and it feels as if society is too constraining and conventionalized and usually has nothing but contempt for it. And eventually they engage in self-destructive uh, behavior. You know, in this case, in Werther's case, it's suicide, right? Uh, and in Howard's case, it was actual suicide. But mm-hmm. uh, Howard's idea of, of kind of Barbarism as being the, the 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 best state of humanity, like not being constrained by like a decadent civilization's rules, it's totally applies to to the sorrows of young Werther. I just taught that novel uh, today, so cool. Yeah, uh, it's and, and we're actually reading um we're 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 going to read uh, the uh, Queen of the Black Coast. Oh, nice in, in that class. It, it starts in the 18th century and then it it it, it proceeds through. Um, the 20th century. We're actually reading El- Elric of Melnibone in that class as well. What? That's Far awesome, out. dude. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That is that I'm a little jealous of yeah. that, of that class. I kind of want to take it and want to teach it, <laughs> but mainly I want to take it. <laughs> we, we just uh, revisited the queen of the black coast on a recent episode. We did. Yeah. Awesome. That's, that's the one story where Conan so taciturn never expresses himself that directly. Right. Actually, mm-hmm. has his one monologue where he he like gives us his life um, philosophy. That one paragraph, it's a very compressed paragraph, but and, it, and it's pretty dour. <laughs> it's how I live my life. No, I'm just playing. It, I don't. You're uh, the uh, you're, you're the, the, the hopeless Byronic romantic hero. Is that right. what you're saying? That's what Jason? I'm hearing. <laughs> no, isn't it interesting to think about uh, Conan as a kind of Byronic hero? Can yeah, I, like, yeah, totally. I, I think I think there's there's a uh, you know an argument to be made there. Cool. Sounds like like the makings (laughs) of another research paper for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Josh, no, I'm pointing to you, dude. Okay. You're you. All right. You are you. You are not John. How do I know if I'm me? (laughs) (laughs) You're getting all coal. I know. I'm going coal on you. My one thing is, uh, you know the website GOG? I do know the the GOG. Good old games. Mm Mm-hmm just had their summer sale mm-hmm. and uh it's ridiculous man how do they sell these games that ordinarily sell for 20 bucks for like three dollars they're old I, well they're, they're good though <laughs> but they're good and old and old um anyway i bought this game called crusader kings 
I've heard of that. And I got it for like two bucks. Uh huh. And I think that's all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> You're going to be a crusader king. Yeah, I'm going to spread the the one true religion of the one true God throughout throughout Europe. <laughs> um, on my on my dig- digital screen. Hey, John, did you pick up any uh, GOG games? I didn't. No, no, not this year. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, I'll give you a copy since it's DRM free of Crusader Kings, so you can okay. join me in my crusade. This is the first one. I this have is, the second one. I don't have the second one. Yeah, this is the first one. I've, I've, I thought that if I liked the first one, since it was so cheap, that maybe when Steam does their summer sale, I would pick up. You guys number can two. pass it around, just totally free of DRMs and mm-hmm. totally open we're, to whatever. We're gonna Solomon Kane our way through Europe. <laughs> and, and <laughs> it's it will be glorious. Sounds sweet. Anyway, Crusader Kings. John, you, should, you, you got a one it. thing. Yep. Mine is a book. It's called Lost Christianities, The Battles for Scripture and <gasps> Faith in the Faiths We Never Knew. Oh, uh, there's uh, a through line. Airman. But, what were you saying, Josh? There's a through line there. There is kind of a through line there. Yeah. Um, I heard about it on Apocrypals, a podcast that I do like to listen to. They had kind of a question and answer episode about books that they enjoy looking at uh, before their shows. And this was one of them that they pointed out and one of their listeners also pointed out. It's a little dry, uh, but it's also just interesting to like do thought experiments about all of the possible religions that could have existed in the past, like uh, Schrodinger's Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> you you had me there, dude. Crisis on Infinite Christianities. <laughs> crisis Crisis on Infinite Jesuses. That's that should be what it's called. That's awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. How about you, Luke? Me, I have. Uh... Uh, another another reading. You said your reading was very dry. I'm gonna go ahead and get like a little bit R-rated. My reading is very very wet. Uh, <laughs> so Jeez, I'm gonna let you. that sink in. Uh, so so my one thing is uh, Clive Barker's Books of Blood, and specifically it's Volume One. I've liked Clive Barker over over the years. When I was a teenager, I think I had read like. Cabal, and of course, I'd watch Nightbreed and Hellraiser and that kind of thing. Uh, so I was I was into Clive Barker at least a little bit, but his stuff just sort of when I was younger, it was a little bit too weird, and I didn't necessarily get it all. Uh, and so I have a copy of the third Books of Blood, uh, but the other day I was at the bookstore and I picked up the first Books of Blood, and nice. I just mowed through it over. Over the past week, like just very short. And so it is like Clive Barker's Books of Blood in total are, are six short paperbacks that ran in sequence, I think just over like the mid 80s, like 84 to 86, maybe 84 to 87, something like that. But the first volume has like the Midnight Meat Train uh, and it ends with uh, the, the Cities and the Hills. Uh, there's also... Let's see here. Uh, Sex, Death, and Starshine, Pig's Blood Blues, and The Gathering of the Jack. So those are the five like principal short stories. There's also like an opening sort of narrative that's along the lines of like Ray Bradbury's Illustrated Man kind of thing, but it's just a really short sort of sort of opener. Uh, I I don't know. I love it. Uh, Clive Barker is is bonkers, and it's pretty cool to read like these mid '80s horror stories. The guy just has a voice that's 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 different and is very visceral, and 
It's very emotive. I, I love it. But he's also very sensual. Like, yeah, it, it, he, he strikes me as being in the tradition of uh, like Clark Ashton Smith. He he is like I think the uh, the contemporary like Clark Ashton Smith writer. He's it, Smithonian. Yeah, like I mean, I know that he became also very weird. I shouldn't say weird. Like uh, like fantasy and. Like fantasy fiction and just imagination mm-hmm. centric with a lot, of, a lot of his longer form stuff. But the the first books of blood that he wrote were trendsetters as far as like the short form horror fiction. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm loving it, man. Yeah. I'm I'm super psyched. The like, mid- midnight this is great. Midnight Meat Train is just uh, it's, <laughs> it's Lovecraftian, right? It like, is. It, it is. And I was not expecting it. I didn't necessarily know what to expect when I read that the other day. Uh, but it, it totally, it, it took me like, it took me on a trip. Uh, Nicole, Jason, have you guys ever read any Clive Barker stuff? It's funny that you said that because back in the early nineties, I was totally, I mean, I was like 12 and this is what happens when your mom takes you to the library and just says, go get books. <laughs> so I was into horror and yeah, I was reading King and Barker and like Dean Koontz and like all those people. And I think I did read that collection back then. Cause I know I've read midnight me train at some point, mm-hmm. but it's been like, God, I don't know, like 20 some years, but those are great. They, they really are in there. I don't necessarily want to say they're so much more mature than like Stephen King or something like that, but there's a difference with the, the rating or at least like the, the level at which the two, the two writers are, are, are pinning their materials. They're evoking different feelings. Yeah. Like, like it's horror, yeah. but yeah. yeah. I mean, his is so much more uncanny. Like I, I did read something cause I was remembering this the other year. I was like, Oh, I used to be really into Barker. And there was one short story where somebody is like trying to unknot something. Did you read this one? Uh, that's not in this collection yet. Okay. And so maybe yeah. one of the later ones. Yep. Yeah. He's trying to unknot something. And I and then I don't know, something about like demons, like a demon pops out at the end. I don't think that's quite <laughs> it, but like, like it's like this obsession, this obsession to, uh, to unknot, um, actually causes, I think one of his friends to die. And I believe there's something that has to do some like otherworldly creature is the cause uh-huh. of, of it. But I, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just bizarre, like really brilliant and kind of creepy, horrifying stuff. It is. And there's there's big picture ideas. There's very visceral scares to it too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm loving it. Like the 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 final story within this collection is called "In the Hills, the Cities," which I think is heralded as one of Barker's best stories. And it's it's just this bonkers early '80s story of uh, two gay men that are on their honeymoon in like uh Yugoslavia and they encounter uh people as giants in a very like literal sense like mm-hmm. like the city state is is people sort of put together and it's such a weird concept uh but when you start thinking about what it represents with the two city states fighting against each other and the two lovers within the story there's there's layers upon layers it's it's a total like shreky and like onion (laughs) (laughs) it's it's great like i i love it uh and then i i don't know every story within the book and it's a short it's a short book there's only five or six stories every one of them is 
is just bonkers good. Uh, and I'm so, so excited. So I've got, I have uh, books of blood volume three and I'm eagerly going to look for number two. I know you don't have to read any of them in sequence. You can just pick up any of them and read them, but I'm going to take volume three with me on vacation next week. And I'm going to read the hell out of it. Nice. Yeah. There's an author that you guys should read. I got to look up his name. Um, did you ever watch, what was that movie on Netflix about the, the, language disease that like oh. people Pontypool. Pontypool, yeah. yeah who's the author who wrote Pontypool? okay hey, what, have you read any of his stuff because i got really into him the other year well i was back in grad school i like um, i like how you refer to things as the other year nicole like that's yeah. <laughs> i live my life along the along those that basis tony tony burgess okay. he's, cool. a, he's a canadian author um and yeah, that, that movie Pontypool, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but it was amazing. Cool. Uh, but he also has done some short fiction. And some of his stuff, his short fiction, is, is very horror-based. Um, but it, now that we're talking about Barker, Burgess's stuff uh, is kind of an echo, is like some echoes of the same ideas and like even writing styles. And he's he's super creepy and he writes some some really cool things. So you should check out, check out his stuff. Nice. Awesome. I will. That's... <laughs> That's awesome. I'm a, I'm on a Barker kick. A yeah. lot. It's going to yeah. take you into into unknown vistas of of madness. The sights that I'll see and the <laughs> we have such sights to show you. It's delicious. We have such things to tell you. Get five me out things of here, dude. Five things, in fact. We we put them together and they become uh, an invader from the outer gulfs and far black reaches of cosmic being, and we call it one thing. You stuck that landing, dude. Thank you. <laughs> You really didn't nail that. (laughs) All right. So uh, we're past our one things. We're past our drinks. We're past our uh, Robert E. Howard Day stories. We're going to get into the content, right? We're laying down good content. But yeah, we're going to get down into the nitty gritty. I'm putting down like the the little bits of kindling that I'm going to strike a fire. Are you Asherbanipal? I am going to light the fire. You didn't start the fire. <laughs> now we gotta have Billy Joel as the outro here. That's probably gonna happen. <laughs> uh, so tonight we're talking about the fire of Asurbanipal. This is a fun story. This is the weirdification story. This is a story that was published two ways. It's, That's right. It's, it's almost like a, a Top Chef episode where they like present a style of food two ways. We're presenting it both straight M- mundane mundane and then weird the weird <laughs> yeah it came weird first right it did come weird first it initially as we said at the top of the episode was published in weird tales yep. in december of 1936 yeah um later uh glenn lord found the uh manuscript the typescript of the uh more mundane adventure story yep. and it was published in the howard collector number 16 and so you can read two versions of the story. Um, hey, John, how did you how did you read this story? I read it in the two Del Reys that it's uh, published in the El Borac version for the adventure one, and the horror stories of Robert E. Howard for the scary uh, Cthulhu one. Yep, same right same for me. And I sent that version to 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 you, Jason, and and to uh, Nicole as well. Is that how you guys read it? That's how I read it. Yeah, I'd never read this one before. Okay. So. And I, I, I'm very excited to talk about the changes cool. that happen between the, the two different versions. Awesome. What about you, Jason? Did, okay. 
it's a, like from a, a literary historical perspective, it's it's just amazing. So so I read it. Uh, I read the original like weird version within the Bane, uh, Cthulhu, the Mythos, and Kindred Horrors version. So that was like the core version. Is that a Ramsey Campbell? It's uh no, it's just uh. It has, by David it's got Drake. The, okay. the intro by David Drake, and I've, maybe I've talked about this previously, but this is just whatever the 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 sort of Bane releases is. Okay. It has a lot of the the horror stuff, so it's got Worms of the Earth and uh, Pigeons from Hell in it. Uh, so I read this and then went back and looked at the more mundane story. So that okay. was kind of I read the weird first, and then I looked for the changes within the more straight laced, interesting, like, like Oriental. Like you know, yeah, Eastern East, adventures. Eastern adventures version. Mm-hmm. Uh, what version did you guys read first, Jason and Nicole? So I actually I read the Weird Tales version first. Okay, uh, just because I noticed it was it was substantially longer. Yeah. Um, so I I figured that that this one might be uh, and you know it says Weird Tales on it, so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to check this one out first. Um, and then I, as I read the one, the adventure story, the original one, I had the other one out because I printed them off. So I was actually kind of trying to highlight where I saw all the differences happening. And, and it was, um, it was kind of my reading experience, uh, with them both. Cool. I read the adventure um, version first. And then I read the, the the weird tales one. Oh, that's how I did it too. Back, we got we got the count. So we have we have representation here of, of, of both ends. Yeah. So so John, you're the decider. What did you do? Which way did you read it first? Uh, adventure then spooky. Ooh. All right. So Nicole and I are the the spooky first, adventure later, and you guys are the adventure first, spooky later. It'll be interesting to see if this uh, plays out in some some way or another as the discussion goes on. We'll see. We'll see. Um, so, John, do you mind setting the stage for us in terms of a uh, a very brief synopsis of the story? Two hundred fifty words brief. or less. I don't. It care can be sp- it can be sprawling. What are- <laughs> Dude, no, I'm I'm constraining you. No, uh, <laughs> you can't. I'm unconstrainable. That's true. <laughs> um. So we got a couple of guys that are soldiers of fortune. They are looking for a jewel that they've heard about in legends in the desert. And they are also being waylaid by some of the natives who don't seem to care for their presence. They find this big city that's made out of obsidian rocks from another terrible region of outer space. (laughs) And inside of these ruins, depending on which version you read, they either run in, they run into some complications because they're kind of out of supplies by the time they get there. But when they get inside, they're attacked by some no good nicks who want the jewel for themselves. And depending on which version you read, they either succumb to the battle or in a pit viper bite or a monster from the outer reaches of unknowable space comes out and eats the main bad guy. Pretty good. <laughs> well, which version would you read right which one do i like oh sorry i was asking kind of a silly hypothetical question based on those you want to read the snake one or right. the unknowable horror one <laughs> <laughs> we leave it to you the amen it's, it's like a choose your own adventure but you can never win 
Well, but you don't really win in those very yeah, often anyway. That's true. There's, there, no, so there's one of those two that's more fun, I think. Okay. I, I like the unnameable horror. Like, the, the Weird Tales version of this, I think, is the superior option. And I think it's awesome. I liked it. Go into that. What what is what's what is a thing that you think is superior in the Weird Tales version versus the uh, adventure story? Mm, I like the scary factors that lead up to the adder bite within the sort of like you know straight laced version, the mundane mm-hmm. version, uh, and then post facto, I like the uh, the fact that. Uh, we have something that's more than just, eh, it was more than a snake, and here, look, I still got the jewel. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a couple layers there, but but I definitely like the uh, the weird version of this. Okay. It's an okay opinion to have if you want to be wrong. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and, and, and the counter to that is, is that dude over there. Yeah, let's hear it, John. Oh, I'm just being aggressive. No, I, I would. Uh, no, I, I guess I did like the adventure one better, but that's just my opinion as a, as a lowly. It's okay. What, what's your opinion, though? Yeah. Like, why did you like it more? Dive in. Uh, I like the wink at the end a little bit more. Like that. There's a scary bit. It seemed very uh, like early 2000s. The Mummy and the okay. Mummy returns to me. Um, I don't like. I don't need the big spooky monster thing, and that I just feel like that opens up a lot of questions that. I don't. I don't need to go into. <laughs> it, it's, we have two guys that are veterans of wars. They're like hauling around doing fun adventure stuff, and then boom, Cthulhu monster. Mm-hmm. It tests credulity. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I don't love credulity. I don't know. I just didn't like it as much. That's just my opinion. Okay, that's fair. How did you feel, Jason? Well, I, I, I like them both, and the reason why I like them both is because uh, it, like, maps onto uh, this phenomenon in literary history. Um, I'm sorry if this comes off as pretentious, but I'm, uh, this is this is my, my, um, my wheelhouse. Uh, so gothic fiction, which is what Lovecraft inherits, and I, I make an argument in my um, dissertation about um, Robert E. Howard as being a, a modern gothic writer. So, like, when the gothic novel first shows up, uh, with uh, Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, um, you'll have things like the painting with the eyes that move, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's a common trope, or like clanking chains in the distance, or, um, you know, a door that opens by itself. And, and in Horace Walpole's um, novels, the supernatural, when it appears, it's always up in the air, whether or not it's actually supernatural or if it's just kind of a coincidence or there's a, there's a reasonable explanation, right? But then um, as the – I'm sorry if this goes too long. As the Gothic proceeds, you have uh, the, the – um, Anne Radcliffe shows up and you have the supernatural explained. So you know what I mean? So if a skeleton, for example, pops out of a, um, a uh, coffin, it's, it's, it's explained away as like, oh, there was a, a mechanical con- uh, contrivance that made the skeleton popped out. The Baron was trying to scare somebody to death so he could get there. Uh, you know, the Scooby-Doo moment, I tell my students, right? It becomes very popular in the, um, in the late uh, 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 1700s, like 1790, um, because you wanted to have respectability. You wanted to get the sh- chills and scares of, like, supernatural, but you didn't want to test credulity, uh, so you would explain it away. Right. But this guy, um, Matthew Gregory Lewis, shows up after Anne Radcliffe, 
and he he tricks people. He has this novel called The Monk, right? So at this point, the supernatural explained is completely conventional in the gothic novel. Everybody's expecting that Scooby-Doo moment, you know, when something crazy happens, right? Like, oh, it was, you know, this is why. It, the, the, the ethereal music that you heard was actually a violinist um, who was mourning the death of his uh, lost love. And it just so happened that he was in the graveyard when you heard it, right? It wasn't actually a supernatural music. But so Matthew Gregory Lewis shows up. He writes this book called The Monk. And at the end of um, the, the novel, famously, the protagonist, Ambrosio, uh, the devil pops up and then impales Ambrosio on a spike, right? And so the uh, early uh, 19th century reader is waiting for this kind of supernatural explained moment, right? Like, uh, it's not really the devil, right? It's just, uh, <laughs> it's just um, you know, the, some person in a costume and, you know. But like he kind of winks at the reader and it's never explained. And so that's a moment where like it's he goes from the supernatural explained to, well, it was, no, actually the devil showed up and impaled this guy on a spike. Right. And um, I love how both of these stories, like it kind of captures that entire movement in, in you know gothic literature and the way it's been treated in literature. It's like you have the supernatural explained in the, um, the, the first story. Uh, the fire, uh, the, um, the, the gem is, 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 is could be supernatural. Or it could just be a coincidence that the um, the serpent was in the skull, or it, but then in the second one it actually you know does the thought experiment. It takes it even further and says no, it's actually like this pulsating, haunted, you know, totem. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But, um, but so but, it does. But so I, it's it's hard for me to choose because for me um, the artistic uh, the 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 joy I got out of reading these is reading them both together. Hope that doesn't come off as being pretentious, but like reading them both together. I, st I still want to push you and say, which one did you like more? Yeah. Well, I, I so let me let me build on what Jason just said before before he answers that. Like I I, I agree with you uh, regarding the adventure story, and I, I think there's a moment at the end of that version where Clarny, our, our main character, is kind of thinking, you know, it's it's weird, awfully weird that that asp was in that skull at that moment, isn't it? Yeah. When, when the guy took the jewel, uh, could that have been a curse? Eh, maybe, maybe, but better not to think about it. Um, yeah. And, and I, I like that that is kind of the, uh, yeah, there's a Scooby-Doo monster, um, and you, you take off its, its mask and, Oh, it, it was a serpent the whole time, but, but was it really? Uh, yeah. so I like that aspect of the adventure story. It is more artful to like, leave it open, you know, like, uh, was it super, have you guys seen, um, Mandy the movie just came out? Yes. Uh, it does that. You don't know if this character is, um, I recommend the movie. It, it could very well be on the left. It could be, oh my gosh, this guy is in fighting demons. He's going to an extra dimension and, you know, completely craziness, right? Like supernatural craziness. Or it could be that he's just on acid, you know? And the film <laughs> yeah. never um, never give, tips its hand, right? It never lets you know if it's one or the other. And I feel so, like that's very artful. So in that movie, Jason, I mean, I agree that it's, it's very it's very artful in its delivery and it makes it very, uh, un, like, it's mystical, like how things are playing out. But at no point did I uh, doubt the the director's intentions about like, like, like Nick Cage, his perception of the, 
of the story was what we were supposed to interpret. Did you take it otherwise? Well, I still don't know if if all of that craziness, like at the very end, uh, uh, when he's, uh, I think he, I think he went to another planet because <laughs> the, 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 uh, right. He he goes through that tunnel and he comes out in this other place where they're building the church, right? And as he's driving away, it kind of pans up and you see like those three planets. Yeah, you know? right, right. Multiple. Like, what the yeah. shit is this? You know, where is he? And um, I, I mean, I, I think you could take it two ways. It could be he's actually traveled to another dimension in some weird way where the um, – what are they called? The um, the cult has a name. The children uh-huh. of the new dawn. Right. right. Where the children of the new dawn have went or he's just on acid. He's on some bad, you know, crazy, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Um, drugs and I, I am. Um, I don't know. I guess I like that it's not. It's it, you know. But let's 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 be honest. It's it's an indie movie. It's for like an you know um, kind of a uh, avant garde crowd. You know right. I mean? like, a lot of people want want that resolution at the end. You know. Right. But I think the adventure story, the first version, is more artful in that it doesn't. Like it was. I'm not I'm not sure who said that, but it could be that. It was a curse, actual supernatural, or it could be that it, it was just a serpent was there, mm-hmm. you know. Let's pull Nicole into this uh, at this point and, and get your take on it, Nicole. Yeah, so um, I think I preferred the Weird Tales one. Um, more from a story point of view and a, and a narrative uh, point of view, it felt more um, complete. And when I was reading the original adventure story, um, I don't know, it, like I remember reading it, I didn't, I didn't write anything down, but I know I distinctly remember when I got to the very end, I was like, this doesn't feel like he finished it. Like it, I don't know, Mm -hmm. it it wrapped up too cleanly for me. Um, and then I just, I don't know, I, I didn't particularly like it I, I felt like the narrative potential didn't really live up because the thing about the original is there are so many little hints about potential supernatural that he develops uh in really interesting ways in the weird tale version and obviously he gets into to much more detail and depth about like what happened with the source the magician um and this king and everything and I, I don't know. I liked how that got carried through and developed in the second one. Um, it's probably also just I prefer things that have more of a weird bent to mm-hmm. the narrative uh, just from a reader perspective. Um, so that one I felt much more engaged in. Um, and it seemed to me like there was much more at stake uh, for the two um, main characters that we get introduced to at the beginning. Um yeah, so that was uh, that was my reading experience uh, between the two versions. Yeah, I would I would echo Nicole's feeling like whenever the the story wrapped up, like the uh, the gravity of the situation in the Weird Tales version was that much more severe mm-hmm. as opposed to the more mundane, like hey, they're just in this situation. There's guys. That are swinging swords and stuff. Uh, there's there's more at stake. Like their their sanity and their souls are at stake. And I yeah. really I really like the way that came across. Uh, it's a little bit. I don't know. In 2019, like you've seen that a few times over mm-hmm. the way that it's delivered. 
but I did like it. I like the way that Howard builds the the story of the city in both versions. Um, I think in both versions he invokes uh, Al Hazred and this this uh, trope of the the nameless city in the desert, right? That yep. is hinted at in the Necronomicon. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is present in both. And I wonder if the reason that I like the adventure story just slightly more is because I read it first and it introduces all of these kind of unanswered questions about, you know, the, the realities of the city and of the, the gem and of the curse. Uh, and, and nothing is ever really, um, maybe that's why I like it. Like nothing is ever really answered. Uh, it's kind of up to your interpretation. I can, I can totally see why you would like the weird tales version more and I don't dislike it. Um, I, I think the one interesting thing about the story, and I hope we dig into this, uh, in more detail is the way in which Howard adds language to the story that transforms the narrative from an adventure story that is essentially an El Borak story, right? Like the adventure version of the, the, the fire of Ashurbanipal is the, the cousin of the El Borak story about the, the guy in the caves. What was the name of the story, John? Do you remember, you know, yeah. the one I'm talking about where the, the wizards in the cave trying right. to meditate himself into a higher plane. Yeah. 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 And, and it turns out he's not a djinn. He's, he's just a, a, an old man who has kind of lost his mind and mm-hmm. hit his head and, and he's murdering people. Um, and so there's this hint of the supernatural, um, that's sort of somewhat explained in that story. And I think this story is akin to that. Yeah. Um, but, but I love the way that Howard adds language, uh, like a spice to the story that makes it a weird story. I don't know. I like the extra layers of non-human bigger picture scare factors at play within the weird tale stuff. Well, okay, let's let's take the the discussion in in that way and I have a question for for you guys. Is it is it strange to you that the the more uh obviously Lovecraft influenced version of this story answers more questions than the adventure story does? Oh, that's uh, an interesting. That, that's a good point, dude. Yeah. Because Lovecraft is notorious, right, for for just sort of leaving these threads dangling, and because this name drops the the various Lovecraftian elements, yeah, Yog Sothoth, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that is something too that because um, I, I know I was critiquing the ending of the other one, but then I was rereading the ending of this one just now, uh, the Weird Tales one, and that one I almost feel like he gave away too much stuff. I was like, oh, I wish he wouldn't have ended. Like, I wish he would have ended a paragraph sooner. Mm-hmm. Right. If he just would have said something like, like ended on uh, where, what's his name? Steve. Is that his first name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If he just would have said, I looked, I wish I had not. I know I'll dream about it for the rest of my life. Then that could have been the ending. And that would have been <laughs> really in like a Lovecraft like style. Right? Yeah. yeah. There are, um, Mythos stories that are derivative and conventional that aren't as exciting. And I, I, I like this story. I'm not, it's, it's hard for me to say I don't like it because it's, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, but 
it does feel like the uh, it, it, it's a very conventional mythos story. It's it's like he took the adventure story, and he, this is exactly probably what he did, which is he he just you know applied um, weird tales, Lovecraft uh, you know elements to it. He just sutured Lovecraft elements to it in a in a conventional way. Yeah, you know, that's, and, that's... like in the same way that um, we 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 and Lovecraft. Uh, you know, fandom and scholarship, people give like the derivative mythos stories a hard time because the original mythos is all about like ambiguity and um, complexity and, and dynamism. And whereas when August Derla started to kind of codify all of the gods and actually put them as having like particular factions fighting each other, right? Like it's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be like a mess, you know, that you mm-hmm. can't figure out. And maybe, I don't know. Um, it does give away too much. But if he wrote the original adventure story first and then went back and retold it for the weird tales, is that the, is that the timeline here? Again? Uh, no, the opposite. I, no, no, no. I think it's, oh. it, it did start as a mundane adventure story, but it was never published. But it that was way. never seen until it was weird. Yes. So, yeah. so the initial version was the, um, the Glenn Lord, uh, Trump uh, okay. version. Yeah. Okay. And then okay. he edited that. It's, it's unclear, uh, whether that, version of the story was ever even submitted but he retooled it added the the weird elements and sent it to farnsworth who who well he didn't send it it was in the the trunk um and his father sent it in to to farnsworth after he had uh passed on yeah so but if he i wanted to finish my point real fast sorry so if he had no that's okay um i was actually talking to jay not you (laughs) um yeah i was interrupting this is husband and wife banter right here so, um, if he had the original story, uh, just the plain adventure story first, and he knew he wanted to retool it um, for Weird Tales, which is something that he, I think he did quite frequently, take mm-hmm. a story that didn't work in one market, retool it for another market that he knows well. Um, you can see that happening here very clearly, and that could be another reason why he's answering the questions. Anything that wasn't answered in the first story, in the original, he could go back and he could add these Lovecraftian mythos elements to it that just happened to answer some of these things that hadn't been that had been asked but not necessarily addressed in the original. Good, good call. Good point. Yeah, yeah. There, there's so much here. Like um, Howard was a, such a good pulp writer. Like. He wrote for the market, but then he was also willing to um, combine genres. And Mark Finn has talked about this, like that. What like makes Howard's writing so um, vital is it's it, it's um, Howard was um, willing to engage in, in in genre hybridity. I like that term. Yeah. Uh, so like, there, there's boxing stories where where boxing stories wouldn't buy it. So he throws in a ghost, and then sells it a ghost story. It's like the the this original um, uh, version of the story. Is totally derivative of uh, like something like King Solomon's Mine. Yeah. Have you guys read H. Ryder Haggard? Like, yeah. Yeah. We covered Chi. Yeah. I I actually thought this reminded me a little bit of the man who would be king at the beginning, where they're like, you know, buddies going through the Kyra Pass. We'll come back to that. Okay. We'll come back to Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, um, oh, I also want to say like Howard um, is really interested in um, uh, kind of geologic time. And when you juxtapose the human against geologic time, it like it. it uh, this is Lovecraft too, but this is Lovecraft, Smith, and Howard, and a lot of Weird Tales writers are all about like framing the human existentially against the um, vastness of geologic time. And they always use uh, the trope of the of the de- decaying city or the deforming city to do it. And, they, and I think he does a good job in this one. So like 
they're literally walking into pre-biblical times, you know, mm-hmm. like the Temple of Baal and um, what is it like? This is a um, a far-flung city of uh, what's the what's the civilization? Um, oh, the Assyrians. The Assyrians. I, I thought I it was the Assyrians. Yeah. 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 So is- so as these these two dudes were coming into this story, like into the city, I like inescapably was thinking about uh in the mouth of madness like the two fellows coming into contact with the the other like yeah. like weird uh lemurian continent like it, yeah. it's a very different world but but the 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 sort of, sort of hidden city so i don't know i i, I kept returning to that thought but the other bigger like point that sort of held heavy in my head was was indiana jones and and (laughs) like like at the end last crusade like like they they gallop into this weird crevasse and Mm -hmm. they they see some shit and then they they sort of like book it out (laughs) of there like it's the it's it's a lot of the I don't know, man. Spielberg, like I always knew he was an ace as far as like adapting materials and sort of wrapping it up. But between this and the H Rider Haggard and the the man who would be king, like this is this is like Spielbergian mm-hmm. like it's very cinematic romance. Yeah, like yeah. this is amazing. I, and you see it all here. Like it's pretty crazy that you see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean I, Indiana Jones is is a, a uh, George Lucas's um, uh, love note to uh, 1930s um, love love letter to, to 1930s serial film, you know, adventure film. Right. So. It it seems like uh, specifically like Last Crusade owes a debt to this story specifically, and it mm-hmm. seems like a Temple of Doom. I mean, just in as far as it's got that like like bridge scene okay owes a massive debt to the uh the man who would the man who would be king like like there are there are clear like touchstones in those stories that we've talked about like to 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 what spielberg's done and i'm not a spielbergian scholar and so i don't necessarily know how much people have talked about this but it, it seems like there's a pretty clear connection between this weird ass city that's unknown and i mean there's even like the 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 fire like like at least in the weird version yeah there's the whole like uh indiana let it go moment like like and i and i think that's the the super cool actually like as i was reading it, i'm like i was thinking about uh last crusade and i'm like sean connery saying yeah. let it go. let it go like <laughs> he just he just lets the fire go and maybe that's the reason that I like the uh, the weird version more than the mundane version. Because in the mundane version, he's like, "Nah, I'm gonna take the treasure." Yeah, the treasure's here. Nah, I got it. Screw that, or I, I got it. Well, I like the fact that he recognized the the scare factor and let it go. Yeah. The 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 trope of the forbidden treasure goes back to like. You know, the grail or like in Gilgamesh, you have um, the herb of immortality that um, Gilgamesh right. like, drop, drops and the serpent eats. Like the, 
there's this thing that is in a forbidden place that a hero has to venture to. And once they get there and they're beholding it, like they can't actually take it away from that place. Right. Like that's like as old as myth, you know, like it's, it's in every mythology. Um, it's like, it's the, what's it called? Um, dude who brings us fire. Prometheus. Prometheus. <laughs> yeah. It's Promethean. You know, this is totally hues to the, the, um, you know, the, the formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for in this one, they, they actually don't get the fire. You know, um, I was thinking of Michael Crichton's uh, novel. Um, you guys know which one I'm talking about. It's like this, it's another Forbidden City novel, but it, it Congo, Congo. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this is part of that tradition. Yeah, for sure. That that stems into at least in the the pulp tradition, uh, Lovecraft's The Nameless City, and even uh, as you said, Luke, the at the Mountains of Madness these ancient cities that are abandoned for some horrible reason um, that somebody stumbles upon and yeah. un- unwittingly potentially unleashes something that was better left undisturbed. I I was really taken by the, the words that Howard added to the second version of this. The, the I wrote down in my notes, weird words and they are, I just wrote down a few black grizzly doom, Thing, demon, magic, monster, nightmare, magician, horror, gloom, and gray. These are words that overwhelmingly appear in the Weird Tales version that are not nearly as present or or, uh, in some cases absent in the adventure story. Right. Uh so I was taken by the language. Like, how how do you take a a, a story that you've written and add a, a weird template to it? Uh, add the words doom, thing, and grizzly. Well, also just the second one. I mean, obviously there's the whole history of the king and the magician, but yeah, um, he he just starts to really lay on some thick description uh, before they're even getting there. Like, I'm I'm trying to find where I saw it. Um, sorry, I gotta find it. This no, that's happened. okay. But, oh I've yeah, got- yeah. Like down here, where um, they're describing where they're actually going through. Um, they're going through the narrow door at the end of the hall, and then he has these descriptors, dim and dusty. That wasn't in the original. Mm-hmm. In the gray, ghostly light. So there's that gray, um, kind of that that color tone. Massive stone steps. Uh, vanished in the gloom. So yeah, like those things start to appear more and more frequently as the narrative builds. And, and he's doing that um, even before he gets to the whole new part that we don't get in the original. So he's kind of setting that stage a little bit earlier. Yeah. One of the, the paragraphs that survives into the weird tales version that I really love describes the desert. And this is early on in the story and it oh, says, yeah. Oh man, this is so good. The sun sank and the moon rose, flooding the desert with weird silver light. Drifted sand glimmered in long ripples, as if a sea had suddenly been frozen into immobility. Steve, parched fiercely by a thirst he dared not fully quench, cursed beneath his breath. The desert was beautiful beneath the moon, with the beauty of a cold marble lorelei to lure men to destruction. What a mad quest, his weary brain reiterated. The fire of Ashurbanipal retreated into the mazes of unreality with each dragging step. The desert became not merely a material wasteland, but the gray mists of the lost aeons in whose depths dreamed sunken things. <laughs> God, that's good. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, he's he's just a really amazing writer. And um, that's one of the things that I'm hoping that we can have more acknowledgement of. And that's what David was talking about a lot in his, his talk this year at Howard Days. Um, and people might initially dismiss him, but he really was a, quite the master of description and scene setting and, and that kind of language use. Yeah. It's, it's clear that he was interested in poetry and wrote poetry. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that paragraph especially uh, lends to that, I think. Yeah. And, and I love that that made it through to the, the Weird Tales version largely unchanged. There are a few minor uh, word changes, but uh, it it's great in my estimation that it works in both versions of the story. Like the, the desert is a thing that devours Right. And it draws you to it. It's beautiful to look at, but it is going to crush you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think I, I wish I knew the history of the composition, but um, he obviously the, the brush strokes that he added into the second version. I mean, it's he's much more of a skilled writer, you know, like like the I, I, I mean, it was uh, the, the, the passage with the, the if you compare the two descriptions of the desert from the first story and the second. Uh, the, the second is is a is, is a writer who's who's just more um, you know it's a uh, more lyrical it's, it's more beautiful it's more vivid you know so yeah. I, I I wonder if I mean obviously the revision came later but how how much later I've written stories where I'll take a really crappy early version and then later I'll revise it and it becomes a lot better you know I, th- yeah. I think that on the level of the sentence right you know? and right. and is that months or is that a couple of years I'm I'm not certain. Yeah, that would be the other question that I had is he obviously was was in conversation with Lovecraft because he mentions the Necronomicon in both, but then he drops the um, Elder God names uh, in the Weird Tales version. So I'm wondering like how long he had been in correspondence with Lovecraft when he revised it. Good, right, like, good like question. More of Lovecraft's influence, and not just in the mythos, but it might be in the writing itself. Mm-hmm. Like the the word selection. Yeah, the style. It, it's interesting that he changes uh, the spelling of gray from G-R-E-Y in the first version to G-R-A-Y, which is something that, that came up in our last episode, the, the spelling of the word gray, uh, where we said G-R-E-Y is, is a more sort of um, uh, European version, right? Fancy land. Fancy. That's fancy. That's the way fancy, fancy, fancy people spell gray. <laughs> Went from the fancy to the American, or vice versa. <laughs> it, it changed from G R E Y to G R A Y. Oh, okay. Hmm. okay. He also in the first version, which probably lines up more with the particular genre he was imagining, he um, was much more consistent about the uh, dropping of the G and the I N G words. Ah. He actually replaced many of them in the weird tales version, but not all of them because at first I thought he had replaced them all, but I did find a few that he had left um, as they were in the original, which I thought it gives a different, it gives Steve a different personality. Well, Steve is interesting because he's obviously read the Necronomicon, right? Like he's, he's like the, uh, the random faculty members at Miskatonic who just hang out in the (laughs) stacks and read the Necronomicon on their, their lunch breaks. Right. Um, and also studies um, like gems and, and rocks and stuff too because <laughs> yeah. he didn't recognize the cut. <laughs> yeah, he's a uh, uh, an expert in everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's interesting because um, Steve Clarney, that last name is 
I don't know if it's actually Irish or if it's just Howard made it up. But Clarny sounds Irish. It's very similar to Carney, you know, which is Irish. Oh, there you go. And then the, uh, in Post Oaks and Sandruffs, um, his, uh, um, you know, autobiographical stand-in is Steve Costigan. Mm-hmm. So the, the Steve is there. So Steve Clarny is a kind of, um, I don't know, he, I think there's a pretty valid argument to be made that he, he's, he's a kind of Howard figure, uh, or at least a, obviously a, a wish fulfillment, right? Like a, Howard going to the Middle East and searching out forbidden cities. Uh, but um, he's also like, He's kind of um, folksy in his language, right? right yeah. Uh, he kind of exclaims in a very Texas way or an American way, and then uh, uh, he is also this knowledgeable person who you know knows about Jim Lore and the Necronomicon, and I think that's like Howard's interesting uh, conflicted personality. Like he's he's very folksy and like rural, and pro- uh, I'll use that word proletarian. Uh, but at the same time, he's very much a scholar and knowledgeable and well-read. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's two different. There's also two different versions of Steve. Um, where in the in the adventure story, he's he's just very skeptical and be like, "Look, it's just you know that none of this is real. Like your superstitions and and he even has some language in here about that compared to uh, Yara Lee. Uh, but then in the second one, it's like his skepticism is, is proven wrong, you know, cause obviously this exists. So like, I thought it was some of the, you know, and we can certainly talk this up to the time, but he starts using phrases in the weird tale version uh, to describe Yara Lee's, you know, quote, oriental telepathic instinct. Right. very exoticizing the character much more uh, than in the original. Um, but then, yeah, it proves out like, Yes, Steve was wrong, and and Yar was right. You should have listened to him and gotten out of there when you had the chance. So I I liked that about the second one too. It was like, no, actually, this thing is real, um, and yeah, it was there. Because one of the things that I was I felt like kind of was a cop out was when Yar was like, look, I, I feel something. Do you hear that? And then of course the men come up the stairs and both, but then in the, in the, the weird tales one, there is something more that's lurking there. And, and I thought that that was, um, it, for me, it just made the story much more interesting and the characters more interesting too. It, and like Lovecraft and Howard and even Smith, I think it's so interesting the way they undermine, well, not Smith, but Howard and Lovecraft, uh, the, um, you know, Lovecraft in his correspondence and in his essays, he's very suspicious of like, the supernatural, like completely as a, you know, a materialist a scientist doesn't believe in any of that nonsense. Right. Mm-hmm. But it, the characters in his stories, they, they misinterpret the world in the story world that he renders the rational, scientific, materialistic person is the one who has a misinterpretation. So weird. Mm-hmm. Cause you would think that he would celebrate the, you know, like making fun of all the superstitious people and all the people who believe in ghosts and aliens and, um, possession. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Elder gods, but if you're that person, like in the horror at Red Hook, uh, Malone, Malone in his materialistic view, is, it kind of is wrong. You know what I mean? Like it's it's really interesting. Uh, you know, like you would think they would want to celebrate somebody who's who's more like themselves in their. Um, well, actually, that's not true. I think there there are, there are several letters where Howard um, flirts with uh, kind of theosophy and. Um, super superstition. Well, what what we would call superstition. He mm-hmm. he had some um, weird, uh, you know, the stuff ideas. about reincarnation. Yeah, reincarnation yeah. and yeah, genetic memory. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was he was into that sort of deep ancestral connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Um, I'll talk about the past as if he'd lived it and not, uh, uh, not just knew about it. Yeah, and he even says in some of his letters he feels like somebody who is reborn in a time that's alien to them, right? Like, yeah, that sort of thing comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, I wanted to read one more passage from this that I, I thought was rad, and this is the um, the character Nureddin. And this is the the raider, the the guy who follows them into the the lost city, and ultimately is is trying to take advantage of uh, their discovery of the fire of Ashurbanipal and claim it for himself. Like this is the the Belloc of the story, right? Right, right. Um, and Nureddin says, "I am no Bedouin. I have traveled far and seen many lands and many races, and I have talked. Uh, sorry, I have read many books." Uh, I've read many books. I know that fear is smoke and the dead are dead and that gin and ghosts are curse and curses are mists and that the wind blows away. Um, what do you guys think of Nureddin's role in the story? Um, it, it changes a little bit, I think from the initial version where there is no supernatural thing to the, the second version where there is a supernatural thing, right? Like, how do you how do you read Nureddin as a player in this story? Doesn't he say that in both or some version of that speech in both stories? Exa- or- exactly. Yeah, he says some. He, uh, it's it's changed a lot in the second one. That's why I was stumbling over my words. Um, uh, but yeah, he basically says, "Hey, look, a lot of people around here are supernatural. I'm not. I'm a rationalist." And this is a really expensive gem that I can sell and get myself a, a nice profit from. So I'm going to take it. Fear is smoke. It's blown away by the wind. Um, I mean, for me in both stories, he was just that convenient villain. It was like, oh, you know, like when when uh, Steve is before he realizes who it is, you know, he, there's a line in here, like I think of both where he's like, oh, that voice sounds familiar. And then, yeah, it just happens that he had had a run in with him in the past and now he's here again. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I well, read him in both. The, I like to compare him to, uh, Yar Ali, um, the, you know, um, okay. comrade. Yeah. Because Yar Ali is like, uh, almost like quaint in his, um, you know, uh, his, his, he's like the, uh, there's, there's a trope in literature of the, uh, of the wise, um, it's like the, uh, uh, you know, the, the wise black man, right? Like yeah. uh, he's a he's a person of color. Like you think about the shining, you know, like um uh-huh. this shows up a lot, right? Like there's there's this other, there's this ethnic other who 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 is not quite uh, it's it's it's, it's let's, uh, let's let's be honest, it's 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 a, it's a racist trope that still is with us. Right. But it's like they're not quite modern. They have a foot in the pre-modern world and they have a foot in the in the modern world. And because they do, and they're very honest and and they have wisdom that they can dole out. Like they still have access to this kind of pre-modern, uh, pre-secular world, and therefore they're virtuous. Whereas I think um, this, this the second villain who shows up because he's refuted. He he has to he doesn't fulfill this role of being the um, you know the uh, the pre-modern right. Mm-hmm. He, there's something shameful about him, and therefore he's he's villainous right. Whereas like I don't know, I'm I'm just um uh, trying to uh, but. Uh, I'm, I don't know if, what, what, what you guys think about that, but I think Yarali, he's not rational and he's naive, but that's the source of his power. That's why we like him. Like he's 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 an aide to Steve as this rational figure. He whereas um, uh, the other figure, the I forget his name. What's the villain's name? Nick Nureddin. 
Yeah, Noreddin is is not pre-modern where he should be, and therefore he's he's kind of um he's become sinister. You know, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't. Know. It's just a thought, and it might not be right. Um, but there is this trope of the wise pre-modern uh, person of color. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Howard plays in that sandbox a lot, right? Like Solomon Kane's pal mm-hmm. uh, that gives him the staff is it plays into that trope. I can't think of the character's name, but uh, Zenyaga. Nalonga. No, no Nalonga. No yeah, 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 yeah. And so, like, like the magical Negro trope is yeah. the, is the term that, that that pops up within like movies, like and, the Legend and, of Bagger Vance yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. wonderful example. Legend yeah, of Bag- Legend of Bagger yeah. Vance. Yeah. Anyway, I, I was just wondering what your take, what you guys, if you read Noreddin as 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 a, uh, anything more than just a, a mustache twirling villain. Because I really liked that that quote that fear is smoke and the dead are dead and and uh, ghosts and curses are mist that the wind blows away. I like I mean I like that line a lot too. Um, but I felt like then that set him up for that comeuppance. Yeah. And the weird tales, um, you know, in a, in a much more satisfying way as a reader, where in the other one says a version of that and then gets bit by a snake and then it's like, well, okay, he was technically still right, but he did get bit by a snake and he's dead. Yeah. It would be like in, in the Lovecraft story, Dagon, if the narrator was a jerk and then at the end he was like, there's something at the window. I bet it's nothing. I'll just open it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really interesting. And I, I think when, um, when we come to these moments, uh, uh, I like the term aporia, like you can't speak through them. Like, there's no interpretation at hand. That means that it's worth thinking about that. Maybe the writer's doing something really interesting. You know, like I don't know what to make of that character. Right. Like, so on the so, one hand, I'm like, Oh man, Howard's being progressive and he's showing us a, um, you know, a, uh, Islamic person in the 1930s. Most writers were rendering, um, people from the East as these exotic superstitious people. Right. Who we can say Howard was being very progressive and, and modern in his, um, you know, representation. At the same time, this character, because he's so modern, he's that's what causes his doom, right? So there's this really interesting uh, undecided that is worth further thought. I think it's 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 a cool. It, I, I, long story short, it's awesome that we can't answer the question right now. <laughs> so, so Jason, what what did you say that term was? Proporia. Aporia. Aporia. It comes okay. from. Uh, He's not my favorite um, philosopher, but Derrida, uh, Jacques Derrida, uh, deconstructionist philosopher. Uh-huh. It's a term that means um, basically speechlessness. Okay. Like, and he he actually imbues that with moral significance. Like his his whole thing is that language is unstable, and that there are certain things that we can't eat, speak through, and that okay. we better we should just shut up, right? It's actually like a kind of aporia is is um, a word to leave space for. Things that are just so complex, so dynamic that um, we should just sh- allow them to to be unstable and not try to rush and fill them with meaning. You know. Okay. Okay. A P O R A. Is that right? Or I think I A P O R I A. Okay. Cool. I'll jot it down in my notes. There you go. Then we have <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> So we've been going for a while in the story. What have we left out? What are you, uh, did you guys have any other thoughts about the story? I mean, as usual, I think his, um, I mean, this is, we've said this often, uh, 
a lot. I mean, every, everyone who reads Howard says this, but like his uh, the actual action scenes, the violence right, is, is always beautifully rendered. And, oh yeah. Oh totally, man, yeah. The, the fight scene um, is is quite great, and I think it's pretty it's pretty close. Uh, the way he he kept it from the adventure story into the weird tales, but I think it works well in both of them. Very very like vivid. You can see and follow the action quite well. Also, Steve becomes much more cynical in the second version. Like he's like he he reiterates that they're going to die anyway. Yeah, he uh, does a lot more in the second story, and so. I guess I was reading into that. I don't like psychologizing authors because that's bad. We've learned from the camp, you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, but, um, you know, we know this guy's going to commit suicide. And in this later version, uh, this, um, that Steve Costigan, who we've talked about it, well, at least I, I propose that he's a kind of um, stand-in, you know, um, is much more cynical and, 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 is, and is accepting of his, of his inevitable death. I don't know. I, I, I thought that was interesting that Steve is more, um, he keeps talking about how, how they're doomed anyway. Uh, more mm-hmm. in the second story than in the first one. So, so that level of like fatalism, though, like that that permeates a lot of like latter Howard, though. Really, I mean, it's a good point. No, okay, uh, it, it's just right. there. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily mean to uh, say like to to force to force the the issue, but but those types of statements are in. Ladder Conan. Sure. And and even even throughout Howard's works. Like I I'm thinking about this because I watched uh Jason talk about uh Cole in, in one of the uh Howard Day's panels. But uh Jason, you brought up Cole in the Shadow Kingdom thinking as as he's sort of being paraded through through the city that, you know, nations rise and nations fall and and this is all kind of temporary right like absolutely oh my gosh so like um the ancient greek hero was a being unto death like the what made you mortal was that you 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 had to die and so the goal of the hero in ancient greek was to die gloriously you know like that that was that that's how you that was your victory condition to die gloriously that was what the gods wanted you to do Mm -hmm. and like these characters they're always um kind of meditating or, or like their, their ephemerality is, you know, how they live their lives. Like their action proceeds from the fact that they're, they're, there's, there, there's going to be a punctuation mark, you know, it's kind of creepy, uh, knowing how, <laughs> how he, you know, like this is something that the writer felt very viscerally and like took it seriously. And it's, I don't know, it's creepy. I haven't thought it through yet too, because Honestly, um, you know, I don't think suicide is a very glorious death, you know, right. and, uh, but I, the, basically these, the characters are acutely aware that they're going to die. Right. And that's, 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 that's part of what motivates them. And Steve Clarney in this story, I think, you know, the reason why they go into the city is because they're out of water and food and they're screwed, you know? Yeah. So you know. might as well take a chance, right? Like. Yeah. The, the fire of Ashurbanipal might actually be there. And who knows? Yeah. Uh, it, it draws to mind, to me anyway, because I, I watched 300 recently, the the line, you know, our, our arrows will blot out the sun. And then the, the Spartan guy says, then we will fight in the shade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's a, it's a ancient, uh, 
I mean, it's it's interesting because to what extent is it Howard being a Westerner inheriting a culture, or to what extent is it just part of kind of biology? Like, like um, you know, uh, you guys would be more um, qualified to answer this question. Like, is is is, is part of like the male uh, gender to like you know um, that you know part? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, is it is it psychology? Is it neuro? Um, anatomy where we, we, we like live unto death or is it, or is it just this, you know, is it this tr- cultural tradition? Like I'm, I'm sure that, well, in like Japanese culture, the samurai is always o- aware of their death and they're, mm-hmm. they're going to, you know, fight. I, I don't know. Well, I, I'm, 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 I'm going into territory that I, I, I'm not qualified to talk about, uh, but, but yeah, I, I think that this story in particular, um, amongst Howard's story, story, uh, sort of his works, kind of brings these sort of uh, concepts to the forefront, the, these notions of fatalism yeah. and, and dark doom. Right. 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 Um, and I think Jason, you're onto something there with Clarny's kind of uh, constant bemoaning or, or maybe acceptance of his mortality. This is weird, uh, a weird uh, connection, but um, have you guys read uh, the poem by John Keats, Bright Star? No. I have not. I'm going to jot it down. It's a, um, it's a post-coitus scene. Keats is uh, basically, he's, he's dying of tuberculosis. He's like 24 at the time. He dies when he's 25. He's really sick. He doesn't have much time left. And he's just uh, made love with uh, Fanny Braun, his... his um, you know, um, I guess girl, girlfriend, if that's an appropriate word. And he's looking at a star and he says, bright star, how steadfast thou art, uh, not in lone spinner hung a lot. I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to be pretentious to read and express, uh, you know, uh, recite the poem, but, uh, it's all about how like, um, humanity is finite, right? Like being mm-hmm. an organic body is finite and we like, it sucks, you know, and that the entire um, project of romanticism is coming to terms with our finitude and our vulnerability and, um, um, you know, um, our shortness, the, the, the brevity of our lives. And I think that, like, um, that's why the deforming city, the ancient city, like, cities aren't supposed to deform. They're not supposed to, like, decay. They're, like, they're fixed. They're frozen in time. But, the, but, the, but an ancient, but a decaying city is actually changing its shape, right? And it reminds you that, like, oh, my gosh, if this city is falling apart, then what about my me being this 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 flesh and blood person? I I I'm just a candle in the oh my god I just quoted a, <laughs> I just quoted a uh, what the hell what's his name that Elton Elton John song I didn't mean to quote Elton <laughs> John song but like I, I don't know I I um I, I think I think Steve Steve and that's why I think like the um I'm I'm really going down the rabbit hole here like the gem it shows up in a lot of these weird tell story mm-hmm. because the gem the mineral is um the opposite of the flesh body, right? Ah, okay. Like the, 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 the flesh and blood body is uh, ephemeral. It falls apart um, very, you know, very quickly comparatively. The, the gym lasts forever, you know? Yeah. And it's like the star versus the um, tubercular poet, right? Mm, mm-hmm. The gym versus um, a person in the desert who doesn't have water. Or, I mean, you know, this one, the king that's, that, just the skeleton. Yeah, the skeleton yeah. remains of the king. Uh, so, I mean, there's a reason why we want 
various gemstones to sort of persist, right? Like they're they are items that are gonna gonna stick with us, right? They're eternal and yeah. weary ephemeral. Yeah. There's and and so Josh and I are like scribbling little notes back and forth, and so he he wrote out like what is it memento mori, right? Yeah. You like, taught you like, taught me like that word. This is this is a this is a term that we've returned to, but I I mean I think that is like it is a very Howardian term, like this this Absolutely. this idea of like uh, your mortality and the ephemerality of of this existence like yeah. like like that's what we get here with this kind of delivery in, in so many of his stories uh someone goes into a a dying or dead city to get some treasure right like we talk about queen of the black coast at the top of the hour well, that's uh, another example of this right i mean the this is why like ultimately my argument is that in my uh my research and i is but Howard is a romantic, right? He's in the tradition of romanticism, and um, you, he's even suspicious of the uh, endurance of memorials. Like, have you uh, Shelley's poem Ozymandias? Do you guys know that poem? I, I was just thinking about it. Like, uh, uh, here I, uh, I'm Ozymandias, king of kings. <laughs> Behold my works, ye mighty in despair. I, I mean, because you don't know in that. Uh, this is this is we're supposed to be talking about Howard and not Shelley, but I, it's irrelevant. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that poem. Is is Ozymandias a success? We're still talking about him, right? So on on the one hand, the memorial worked, right? He was a he is immortal. We're still talking about him. On the other hand, you could read the poem as like, you know, all of his he's a look on my works, you mighty in despair, but right. just sand dunes forever. So his works have been completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. I, I think Howard is caught in that really. Um, compelling place that a lot of romantic heroes found themselves. And I'm going to say Howard, the writer was a kind of romantic hero, uh, which is that like they have this impossible desire that could never be consummated, which is they want an intense experience that lasts forever, but you can't have an intense experience that lasts forever. It is that that's not the way the universe works. You know what I mean? Intensity of experience is only, it's a function of time, right? Mm-hmm. Like in, in, in in, in, in contrast, it's the only way you can tell an experience is intense is because you haven't habituated to it. You know, yeah. it's we're going. I, I, I'm 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 dragging my I'm dragging us into a rabbit hole of, of like abstract stuff. No, but. this is this is perfect. This is par for the course. Yeah, but I mean, um, I, I I think this this Nicole's rolling her eyes at me because I'm like talking. <laughs> <laughs> She's heard this crap a lot. Like I'm I'm really fascinated with the romantic poets, and uh, I think I think Howard is in. Is in their tradition. I'm not sure if he was conscious of it, but mm-hmm. it's basically, it's 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 really. Um, and and if, if 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 we if we connect all those dots, then he becomes just um, as important as them. You know. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, and and I think uh, I'm looking at my comrades across the gulfs <laughs> of time to uh, Nebraska and across this table uh, to Luke, and I guess we have. Uh, reached a terminus, a turning point <laughs> in, in our adventure tonight. Uh, do you guys have, uh, and I'm saying this broadly, Luke, John, Nicole, Jason, do you have any final thoughts about the fire of Ashurbanipal? Um, I know I would just, people should read both versions and kind of see again, the, the way in which um, Howard 
was very adept at modifying for markets. Yeah. I would, I would underscore that like in, in 2019, it's pretty easy to read both versions. So yeah, just get those Del Rey's. This is a fun exercise to get sort of side by sides. Yeah. uh, Which is a little bit different than perhaps some of the other stuff we're talking about. So, so do that here. And I think that would be cool. I I agree, and I, I think this is a, a different sort of experience than our last episode where we talked about the Spears of Clontarf and the Great God Passes and the Cairn on the Headlands. Yep. Right? Like, these two stories are remarkably similar. It's it's like alternate versions of – or alternate universes almost of the same thing yeah. happening but turning out vastly different. Yeah. Um. And so I do think that you could read both of these like side by side, you know, on subsequent nights or on the same night and, and really get an enriching experience from it. I mean, and there's, there's big differences in terms of the, uh, like the, the feeling, the, mm-hmm. the, the feels that you're getting from both the, the mundane versus the, the, the weird that we're talking about here. Yeah, I think so. I think you get, uh, ultimately a, a different take home message. Yeah. From, from both of those stories. Yeah. John, do you have any final thoughts about the fire of Asher Bonapal? Any burning <laughs> thoughts? I think that the take home message is don't go grave robbing and nothing bad's going to happen to you. There you go. Don't go, don't go chasing dead cities. Dude. That's right. Stick to the archaeological sites that you're used to. That's correct. And have Jeff Shanks with you so you can have a free dig. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Jason and Nicole, do you guys have any other thoughts about the fire of Asher Bonapal? I could just say thank you to the archivists who gave us this um, the ability to read both versions. Yeah, it's for a sure. Pain in the ass, and it's a lot of the thankless work to transcribe. Like maybe it was Glenn Lord who's responsible for having us uh, be able to read the original version. Like you know, who, I don't know. Um, thank you, whoever whoever was responsible for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. What are you guys working on? What what things uh, can we expect to see from uh, Nicole and Jason in the coming weeks and months and, and in, into the the latter parts of 2019 into 2020? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mentioned um, at the beginning of our conversation that we're getting ready to build a website for the Dark Man. And one of the elements of that um, I'm hoping to get up and running is a um, blog um, where we can publish more informal pieces, more just like notes and thoughts about Howard or pulp or related uh, writers or pop culture um, memorabilia. Um, And that's something that we're hoping to have open for, you know, anyone who wants to submit something um, could, you know, do that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's hopefully that'll get done by the end of the summer. Um, you know, working on an academic clock is kind of this weird thing. So <laughs> sure. you, you have deadlines, but then they kind of move on you. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows how that goes. Um, so that's something that I'm hoping will come out soon. Um, the next issue of dark man should be out at the very latest by December. So that's exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. Getting lots of submissions for that. You want to say your big fun? Yeah, I, I have two two things, and I'll, I'll be real quick. 
Um, first, uh, my uh, first academic book, it's called um, Weird Tales of Modernity, The Ephemerality of the Ordinary, and the Stories of Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, and H.P. Lovecraft. is uh, being published by McFarlane in August. I think there's an actual final date, but um, I can't think of it off the top of my mind. If you go to McFarlane's website, you can find it in their catalog. Um, I, I'm, I'm finishing up the proof pages and getting it back to them. And then it's going to be sent to the printer, and it's it's, it's going to be out. But then the next thing that I'm I'm starting my second academic book, which is um, it's 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 going to be on uh, the appendix N. Do you guys know what that is? Oh yeah, definitely yeah. Yeah yeah. So uh, it's going to be um, I, I'm finishing up the uh, the proposal. I, I I think I have a press who's, who's an academic press is going to accept it. I'm not going to. I'm, awesome. I'm knocking on wood, but I, I'm it, I'm going to start working on it. So somebody's going to publish it. But it's going to be about um, the uh, the aesthetics uh, the um, aesthetics of sword and sorcery in uh, the appendix N. No, the literary art of Dungeons and Dragons, the aesthetics of sword and sorcery in the appendix N. Great. And, and I'm going to be working on that for a, 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 probably a year or so before that comes out. Awesome. Oh, that is that is that's incredible. So lots of in, really incredible work coming from Nicole Emil Haynes Carney and Jason Ray Carney. Thank you both for joining us for tonight's episode of the Chromecast. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Absolutely. And come back anytime. The The door is wide open. Cool. cool. We had fun. Thanks, guys. We had a lot of fun. Um, and what do we do next time, guys? Is it next Simmerket? Oh, Seems right. That right. feels right. Yeah, Andrew J. Offit. Yep, Kentucky. I think it's right. Uh, Andrew Offit. Yeah, we're going to talk about an Andrew Offit story. He he took uh, the 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 rather limited notes to the story called Next Simmerket, and he uh, expanded it somewhat and published it in one of his uh, uh, anthologies. Right. It's in the uh, Swords Against. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Swords Against Darkness. Swords Against Darkness. Okay. Yeah, it's in the first, uh, first anthology there. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. About that anthology. Yeah, I'm. I'm excited to talk about Offit and uh, that anthology. But that's that's what's up. So, so we've got the expansion, which is that, and then after that is uh, our sort of synopsis wrap the, up. Yeah, the, the recollect. Recapitulation. Recapitulation. Yeah, we're going to recapitulate all over the place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but until then, you can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at thecromcast. You can find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash thecromcast. And you can call us and leave us a voicemail. Let us know some messages from the outer gulfs of madness. That number is 859-429-CROM. John, should you get your parents' permission? Always. Always, yes. Um, And we'll see you a little bit further down the road of revisions.